Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Hi, everybody. My name is Timmy from the Two Naughties podcast. This is James, my co-host and friend. Hi, everybody. Um, before we begin, we'd just like to say thank you very much to Danny O'Donovan from QuickMinutes.com, who has sponsored the show for the month of July. Tonight we're going to have a chat with James and he's going to talk to us about his story. James was on the Tommy Turner show in January and spoke about his story but there was a little bit of it left out. There was about 15 minutes of it played. So tonight he's going to go into a little bit more detail about his story and um, yeah. that's your introduction James. The uncuff version. Yeah. <laughs> so um, James is going to start off there wherever mm. he yeah yeah so when uh i'm from the same state as you yeah. as we've uh, found out in the first podcast you know but a few years younger i'd, I'd like to remind you yeah. <laughs> but yeah from our north side of the city originally from dublin born in dublin uh we my family's from in chicor we lived in clondalk and not far from weefield prison yeah. mid 80s rough yeah heroin epidemic so my mum said that she'd move us somewhere quieter, so we moved to Dunmore Gardens in Aknaini. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I suppose it is quieter. It's just yeah. not that much quieter, you yeah. know. But uh, So we lived in Dunmore Gardens for a few years, then we moved over to Ercullen, which is a couple of hundred metres down the road, mm-hmm. and that's where I grew up. And I've lived between Holly Hill and Aknaini since, mm-hmm. living in Grom with the last few years. But um, growing up... In, in growing up in them in them areas, they would have been all kind of council estate areas. Mm. But when that's all you know, yeah, it was fine. Like yeah. I never know anything about socio economic deprivation until I went to college. Yeah. I never, you know, it was like 
So what what is socio economic deprivation is just I suppose poverty is like yeah. what what we term poverty in certain areas mm. in cer- among certain kind of groups or so let's say in Dublin you would have have Ballymun and certain I suppose typified really in Ireland by council estates yeah. social housing where the social housing that tends to be um, higher levels of poverty and stuff like that, you know. Mm. But as I said, when when you're from that area, it's mm. all you know. So we we never we weren't growing up thinking, fuck it, I hate being from a socioeconomic yeah. place. It's, it's not yeah. like that. It's just this is life and this is how it was, you know. And I never mm. wanted for anything really, you know. I always remember having food on my table, clothes on my back, mm. and uh, even though obviously times would have been tough, eighties, nineties. Um, we never, I never really felt that I was poor, you know. Yeah. Um, and I went to Knocknahini's Primary School, St Mary's on the Hill. I loved it, you know. I'd good, exp- I've all had good memories from that school. Mm. Um, it's a mixed school. I was not far from where I was living. All my friends was yeah. there. And then when I went to the Man Secondary School, um, I hated the Man. Mm. I know? just pull you back there a sec, James. Yeah. Do you know, around that time. Where did uh, drugs and alcohol come into your life? Uh, when I was in primary school, there wasn't really. Um, although there would have been a lot of addiction in mm. the area where I'm from, and uh, antisocial behaviour. Yeah. And I remember, you know, standing up on the back road there by Hogan's Lane and up further, mm. um, chairing on the gyrators, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that too. Yeah, yeah. like there, there were. Yeah. people that we kind of looked up to and respected yeah. you know it was like a, a community event watching yeah. the gyrators doing donuts on the yeah. back road you know yeah and uh that was i was always kind of attracted to the negativity yeah that that kind of negative lifestyle but at the time we didn't see this negativity you see it as being cool mm. and um drug use would have been common as well you know and uh i suppose when i was younger in primary school age there wasn't drinking drugs involved but when I come into my teens then, you know, that's when I kind of started experimenting. Yeah. But I think around that time, you know, I didn't make the transition from primary school to secondary school well at all. Okay. So I went from a primary school mixed in my my local, local area to a, an all-boys Christian brother school in another area. Very strict. Mm-hmm. Um, around that time as well, my father would have went to prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would have been a middle child, so I have an older brother, a couple of younger sisters... And my mum would have found it difficult to manage me. Mm. I would have become very difficult in school. I remember my mum having to come down to meet the principal every couple of weeks. You know, I'm so bad then that me nan used to have to come down. And Mm. me auntie Claire used to have to come down. Used to take turns, you know. And I remember just spending months on end outside the principal's office or standing in the corridor, you know. And uh, I hated it. And I know looking back... I really needed to be taken out of it, you know. But yeah. my mum was ad- adamant that I get the leaving sort, you know. So it caused a lot of friction for me at home, you know, coming home with letters and just... My mum found it very hard to deal with mm. me when I was in school. When I finished school, I don't mean leaving sort in 2003, 17. Okay. Left the family home, I'd say, nearly straight away, you know. Um, all the freedom in the world then, do you know what I mean? Around that... So you were in secondary school and... Yeah. Where would you have started? Like, were you fitting in with a certain group back then? Yeah. Like, in in the school where I was in, 
it was a tiered kind of a system. Yeah. So one A one was for the smart people, one A two was for they're not that smart but they're trying. Mm-hmm. And one A three was for the messers and the people that weren't really smart or looking back now they probably had intellectual disabilities and ADHDs and all this type of thing. But we were, I was mm-hmm. in I, I initially went into the, the top class but dropped down, you know, I was a class clown. Yeah, I hated yeah. school, I had big resentment with the teachers, you know, and I remember I had an Irish teacher, which I won't name him, he used to call us, me and people in my class, you tug, you scut, yeah. you know, this type of thing. Um, it was all negative. Mm. It was all negative, and my peace of mind wasn't great at the time either, you know. Mm. I would have been very, um, coming into my teens, I became very kind of, um, my self-esteem, you know, like I would have been quite outgoing in primary school, mm-hmm. but in secondary school, I became more introverted, more quiet. And, um, you know, I hated school, as I said, and I started experimenting with drugs then. Okay. 13 solvents. Yeah, yeah. You know, links, petrol, them, that type of stuff, yeah. you know. And uh, I suppose from then on, I was always looking for ways to kind of get out of my head. Mm. While I was at home, and my mum, she always kind of kept the lid on it. She would have been kind of strict. I remember um, going to teenage discos, you know. She mm. wasn't allowing me to go. So I used to, I used to tell my mum I was going over stay in John Paul's in Yorgaf, you know. And then <laughs> yeah. I go over and tell, I tell, tell your mum, my mum said I can go. Yeah. So then me and Japar went to the disco. My mum was over and snuggled up in bed thinking I'm over, you know. <laughs> but you know the way it is, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, teenage discos, ecstasy. Yeah. Um, ecstasy was a big thing there. Yeah, I especially remember. once I finished school, um, I just started taking a lot of ecstasy. Became really skinny as well from mm-hmm. it. You know, when you leave home um, in your late teens, you know, and taking a lot of drugs for call nutrition, mm-hmm. you know, and I became self-conscious. I did have a very poor self-image, and um, yeah. So, what was going on for you back then? This, you know, uh, like say for example, no, you were after finding a group. Pretty much like yourself, you went to the point you didn't fit in at school. Yeah, you know, um, your teachers were particularly one teacher was speaking mm. down to you. You know, um, I understand how that works. You know, um, yeah. you know, but I can imagine it was difficult for you, and you might have had a few struggles as well around your yeah. father being away. You know, yeah, I remember the same time uh, your father being away. I would have um. I would have been in France and uh, I would have actually wrote to your father, you know, trying yeah. to get some guidance, you know, because I knew your dad was getting his, his, his himself together and uh, trying to sort himself out. Yeah. You know, um, and I can imagine how it must have been to have a parent taken away like that as well. Yeah. You know, because I know how close you are with your dad and yeah. your brother. And so it was, it was a difficult time. Yeah, it was a difficult time. And, you know, when you take a parent from the home, it doesn't matter why, he's only still your parent mm. and you're left with no money. Do you know what I mean? So it was it was challenging, like yeah. Do you know, yeah. even if the money that came in maybe wasn't as honest as it could have been. Mm-hmm. When you're a child, you don't know that, but you feel it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um plus then the visiting you know, visiting Cork prison back in the day mm-hmm. was a very shocking setup, you know. Mm-hmm. You could go in you could go in there and it's like walking into a Chinese, you know, with the high counter. Yeah. And when you're a child, you're trying to lean over. And then there was the prospects mm-hmm. class. There could be um, 50, 60 people yeah. in the visiting. Yeah, you could have 
Romanians, Nigerians, people from up the country, all mad accents, everybody yeah. shouting for attention. Yeah. And you'll just be kind of coming last week. I didn't enjoy them visits. Um, and then when he went to the training unit at Mount Jai, it was much better then because mm-hmm. you have your own rooms, you know, and you can go in, there was physical contact, and that was brilliant. I remember those visits, James, and um, I, I can imagine, especially in Cork Prison back then, the visits were, yeah, as you said, they were like a Chinese counter. But you had kids then inside mothers' arms, like you know, yeah. looking at their dads from across the yeah. the counter, and they were crying and yeah. trying to, to, you know, touch their dads or give yeah. them a hug or a kiss, and um, yeah, that that was really, really, really tough for a lot of the prisoners, you know. Yeah, and it hit home. It hit me as well when I was in, in, in a different prison. It um, it really, really affects prisoners you know does, yeah. and family members my wife as well at the time like she she i remember just crying constantly all i wanted to do was just give him a hug and just give him a small reassurance you know so i can yeah. i can imagine yeah. how it is for uh, a child as well yeah like yourself you know all you wanted was that just cuddle and reassurance that everything was going to yeah. be okay from your dad you know so and i think i think it's a little bit different now in that like they have identified that keeping the father a part of the family is critical mm. to stop the reoffending when he gets out, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it is like and I I read many years later as well. Um you know when you've when you're in school, especially around your teenage years and there's not a, there's a parent missing from the home, you know, it affects your ability to concentrate, your behaviour and all this stuff. So later on when I went into academia, I began to read this literature, you know, and I began to you know, look back on my story then and be able mm. to think, you know what, no wonder you were, and it's not about looking for excuses, mm. it's certainly not. I was I, I was a hard child mm. to manage in school, I was. But there was so much going on for me that was mm. never asked, you know, I was never asked by any teacher mm. how are you, or what supports you want, or what's going on for James. It was always, he's bold, detention, tugs, yeah. gut, get out. Yeah, yeah. Constant negative attention yeah. is all I used to get. Reading the literature afterwards and research shows like that, it's not, it's, it's not acting out. It's not bold behaviour. It mm-hmm. might be you know, um, abnormal behaviour. But I was looking for attention. You know, mm-hmm. I was looking for something. You know, yeah. And um, I found that something on the street. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. When yeah. I was in around, hanging around with, you know, people of my generation, mm-hmm. your brothers now and another good few of us. Mm-hmm. You know. We'd, we none of us come from you know um, idyllic settings, let's say, yeah, yeah. and we found comfort in each other, mm-hmm. and it was around around a bonfire generally <laughs> with a lot of cans, yeah, and yeah, that yeah. was it. And it was every night drinking, yeah. every night, mm-hmm. and then some nights would be ecstasy and that type of mm-hmm. stuff. Then, um, and it was fun, mm-hmm. it was fun, but then once the tablets started coming in, you know, we started getting prescriptions mm-hmm. from. Uh, I won't name the doctor. Mm-hmm. He was on Cathedral Road and he used to give us out copious amount of tablets. Um, and there was, like, I remember going into that doctor with a, a story given mm-hmm. to me from my friend's older brother. Um, just tell him that you're on your older prison. Tell him you were on this and that and the other in prison and he'd give him a chat. So I went in 17 with a, 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 a macchiato at a birth, you know, because you have to be 18 to get these tablets. And I was a skinny, scrawny, 17-year-old, like, innocent looking, mm. do you know what I mean? I went in thinking I was just going to be ran out the door. He's going to see you right through me. And then he says, uh, Hi, uh, uh, 
I was in court prison there for a year and uh, I was on uh, Roy Hypnol, Diazepam 10 and DF-118s and he just started writing. Jesus and Christ. I come out there thinking, oh my God, uh-huh. down to the chemist in Shannon Street, came out with about 150 tranquilizers and sleepers and barbitures, everything. And from then on, it was just nice. mayhem because mm-hmm. we were still drinking our own bonfires. But no, we were taking tablets as well. Mm-hmm. And we were blanking out. And like yourself, waking mm-hmm. up in custody was a very common thing to yeah. do. Not, not knowing what was after happening. Um, getting charges in the door for stuff that you've no recollection of doing, mm. all antisocial behaviour. Mm. But some then, I remember then, one time, me and a friend of mine, we were out um, taking, drinking down, taking tablets and taking ecstasy as well. And mm. we couldn't get a bang off. We couldn't come up off the ecstasy. So mm. we robbed the car. And it wasn't even the gyrate. It was just, we robbed the car and drove it down the lane. So we'd somewhere to turn on the radio yeah. and heat us up, you know. But it was no con- no no concept of that somebody actually owned the Dakar and mm-hmm. somebody probably worked very hard for it. And yeah. it was probably so- somebody's pride and joy and you're after just taking it there. Mm-hmm. No, there was no none of that, you know. And yeah. I remember, you know, for a car there when I was about 18, 19, I got eight months in prison. And uh, looking back, I think, you know, maybe if they sat me in front of the victim of mm-hmm. the crime, um, they say I took your car. Do you know, prison, I didn't give a shit about prison, do you know, and it's not being a hard man, it wasn't. I looked forward to the day that I go into a place where my peers were in there, my family had been in there, mm. and it was like a, a kind of a... A reunion. Yeah, it was like yeah. a way that you showed... You fit in. Yeah, it was like... A, mm. in, in other cultures, they have like, um, when you become a man, kind of rituals, you know, it was yeah. like that for us, do you know yeah. what I mean? It was yeah. like, oh, he's been to prison. He staunch, yeah. he, you know, he, he he didn't rat and, you know, yeah. it was all this kind of, yeah. the mentality of what a man actually was, mm-hmm. was very warped, you know. Mm-hmm. So when I went into prison that time, eight months, um, I remember going up onto A3 and it was like Nakhnehini and Hallihill. Mm-hmm. It was just like everybody up there was from my area. Yeah. And I was in there with, you know, um, some of my friends that was locked up in there and it was great. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I remember those times. Um, yeah. They work great. You were one of the people that I uh, I really was surprised with, you know. Yeah. Because I always looked at you and you were a really, really quiet young fella. You know, you were a gifted footballer, gifted soccer player, you know. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that you could definitely go fair. Yourself and another kid that used to live up by us as well. You know, the same guy. He was yeah. very, very talented, you know, until alcohol and drugs came into the scene, you yeah. know. But... um. Did you did you get your your uh, leaving cert done around all this madness? I got my leaving cert done in two thousand and three, and I say I done my leaving cert in two thousand and three mm-hmm. around July. I said, and I was in car prison in November two thousand and four. Okay, so it was a, it was a very quick escalation, mm. um, and like like you were saying, I was a quiet young fella. Mm. I still am quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, definitely, know, I am quiet. I always was quiet. Yeah. Um, but the tablets and the alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, just, I suppose it changed my character, you know what I mean? And I've done, done stuff that I brought up a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. Um, I was out of control, you know. Yeah. It was like blanking out. And it was never about, you know, have, using socially, you know, have a bit of crack. You know, it was, there was there was a part of that, but it was always using to get flattened. Mm-hmm. It was like getting cans, but getting a bottle of porno mm-hmm. on the side. Yeah. You know, yeah. my dad used to say to me, you're the only man in Cork to wake up in the morning and take 10 sleeping tablets. 
<laughs> that was that was the way it was yeah. back then though. And you're around then for the day, complete like a zombie. Yeah. But you know yeah. what it was? I was so in I was quiet and I was shy mm. and I was so insecure that if I didn't have all them tablets in me, mm. I couldn't function as a mm. human. I couldn't I couldn't go to the shop. I was brutal around women. Mm. Do you know, if I was getting attention from a girl, yeah. I wouldn't know how to cope with it unless I was throwing it over my head. Mm. And then it's like, you're grand. Do you know what I mean? It, the tablets gave me everything that I didn't have. Do you know? Mm. The, the confidence, the self-esteem, the all this stuff. Do you know, when you're taking Valium and or Hypnol and stuff like that, you don't give a fuck about anything no. like that. Like, oh, no. It's just like, this is how I am to hate me or leave me. Full, yeah. of, full of confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, that's, yeah. and I always chased that. Yeah, yeah. I always chased that. And... Um, but yeah, but getting back to the, the prison thing, uh, up in A3, oh yeah, I'll go back to the guy that I, you know, we took his car, okay. or l- looking back now, yeah, yeah. I think it would have been very beneficial if I had to meet that person mm-hmm. across the table like this, and for him to tell me how what my actions had the impact on him, mm-hmm. you know, about how he worked hard for it, it was his pride and joy, I think that would have had a way more impact on me than the, the prison sentence, really. Mm-hmm. But we never... Like living in an area like that, like we didn't have nice cars and we didn't have you know nice things like that, mm-hmm. so we never had any connection with the people that did. Yeah, and uh, like if we were treated harshly and we treated them harshly in return, that was just the way of the world. And you sometimes you you get it and sometimes you receive it. And I think that's a very very valuable point what you made there. You know, um, confronting the person that you hurt. Yeah, you know, and and it's something that. That a lot of people do in recovery, you know. Um, yeah, they try to make amends to people that they hurt during their um, their addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is. Yeah, you know. And sometimes people accept it, you know. And sometimes people don't accept it, you know. Mm. But you've often said something to me, you know. Um, what you're doing at the moment is one way of making amends to your community and, yeah. and people that you may have came across in your lifetime and yeah. hurt or whatever, you know, and, and, and I know you and I know you'd always, if someone approached you and something happened in the past, I know you'd always, you know, put your hands up and yeah. say, listen, I apologise, you know, like myself, you know, um, yeah. which I would have yeah. apologised like, last week. D- d- exactly. Yeah. And the guilt and the shame of it all really mm. shows, like the guilt and the shame showed me that I wasn't, that deep down I was actually a good person. You know, but I was doing things that weren't good. Yeah. And I was hurting people and it, it didn't sit with me at all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, when I did come into recovery I was able to go around to some people that I felt, you know, would have been safe for me and safe mm-hmm. for them to, for it to happen. But sometimes I did things that I probably can't remember. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes I did things to people that it wouldn't be best for me to mm-hmm. approach them. So then how do I make amends? It's I do it in a kind of a general way. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to help people um, so I kind of got a job helping people and do this, do you know what I mean? So yeah. if there's still people out there that's hurt, I'm wholly apologetic. Okay. You know? um, but just know like that I wasn't a cold person, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Or I'm not a cold person. I was maybe mm-hmm. under the influence of substances and, um, do you know, but there was a lot of guilt and there's a lot of mm-hmm. regrets there as well. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the football thing. Yeah. Do you know, I, do you know, I lived to play football yeah. when I was a child but I didn't kick a ball between the ages of 16 and 32. Yeah. Like, that's 16 years of my life. Where, and now looking back, this is probably the one big regret I have. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd played football. And it's not about playing 
I'd love to have been played there. You will, mm-hmm. you know, but just to have a career and the camaraderie and you know, to get the Turner's Cross on. I wish to have played in Turner's Cross, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I gave up all my my good years, my athlete years. Let's say for drinking drugs in prison. Yeah, you know, and I in prison, like I get into the shape of my life. You know, I could go into prison nine or ten stone. Seven or eight weeks down the line, playing handball, weightlifting, playing soccer. I've my family back in my life, you know. I've no debts and mm. I'm drug free. I had a social life because I was mingling with friends in there. I felt more freedom in prison than I did on the street. Yeah. Because when I got in the street, I me mean, strung out again. No family around me, no friends around me. Nobody wanted to be around me. I didn't want to be around anybody. And chained to a chemist for the methadone, chained to one or two dealers. Chained to the doctor for the script. The highlight of my week was going to the chemist. Yeah. You know, a very, very pathetic existence. Mm-hmm. But when I went to prison, all that was gone. And even though I was in a tiny cell with somebody else and a piss pot in the corner, yeah. I felt more freedom in there. Yeah. Because I had my family back. I was safe and I was happy and I was, you know, be able to watch the football on the weekend and go to the gym mm-hmm. and, you know, just have a life with people because addiction was very isolating mm-hmm. for me. You know, um, especially when I moved on to the heroin. Mm-hmm. That's what I was just going to get to. You know, we talked about earlier on tablets and ecstasy were after coming into your life and alcohol yeah. and whatever. Um, what age were you when the heroin really crept in and cut a hold of you? Yeah, see, I'm originally from Dublin. I have a lot of family in Dublin. Yeah. I know well about heroin mm-hmm. because of Dublin, do you know what I mean? But we didn't have the heroin issue in Cork like they did in Dublin. Yeah. And I... I, the idea in my head that heroin, you know, intravenous, in, you know, in, injecting drug use on the street, this kind of stereotype that you would have when you think of heroin use, that was my image. And I thought if I wasn't doing that, I'd be fine. But I used to get tablets and I used to sell tablets to this fella. And uh, he did, he gave me heroin one day instead. And I said, I didn't want that, you know. And he says, no, you smoked this on the tin file. Um, so we smoked it. And then I smoked it in in prison, and mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of around two thousand and five, two thousand and six, started coming into Cork then. And I remember, like I'd say, oh, there was a few of us up in Halley Hill. We were some of the first people around the north side to start using heroin. Now I know mm-hmm. it would have been amongst a one or two people before that, but it really kind of got flooded in the north side quickly around that time. Yeah, I remember uh, it. Yeah, like mm-hmm. even your your four years mm-hmm. older than me, your generation missed it, mm-hmm. you know, by a couple of years. But us coming up, heroin started coming in. I remember every Thursday around the boom time, around 2003, 2004, 2005, we used to meet every Thursday up in Halley Hill. And we used to call it Thirsty Thursday. A few cans after work, you know. And then after the, after the while, we would start getting bags of heroin and smoking it. After, after the cans, you know, so yeah, yeah. eventually Thursday Thursday turned into Tinfile Thursday yeah. and then there was no more cans and then there was no more social side to it because there was no more congregating because yeah. everybody becomes snaky, everybody starts being deceitful and nobody wants to share their drugs, nobody, people start losing jobs, mm. you no know, recession hits, yeah. what have we, we've drugs, mm. how, do you, how do you fill the void left by the work? You know, it's drugs and heroin came in when the jobs left and it was like a perfect storm of negativity mm. and it destroyed a lot of people yeah. up around here. I remember. And, the, and there's a few people didn't survive it, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
and we've been to many funerals down through the years, yeah. you know, and my heart goes out to the families, like, it does, yeah. you know, uh, but I feel that I'm really blessed to have survivors. I've I've survived a few overdoses, mm-hmm. you know, um, some of them were bad enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time I got out of prison on TR on a Tuesday. I got out, overdosed on the Tuesday night. I was back in prison on the Wednesday morning. That was how chaotic I was. Yeah. You know, I was like, as soon as I got out of the gate, it was like all them insecurities I had going in, anxiety, self-esteem, shame, guilt. As soon as you get out of the gate, that hits you like a ton of bricks. And it's like, oh my God, what the fuck are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. And it was a taxi or a walk from Ratmore Road, the Cathedral Road, script, chemist, load of tablets set me and then you're back into the cycle because once I started I couldn't stop and it was like back in a few months later or a few weeks later in for eight months out for eight mm. weeks in for six months out for two weeks this type of thing so in 2005 this all kicked off yeah when did it all kind of come to an end you know like how long were you using like you know every drug is uh, does damage to people in yeah. some way you know and I know how bad heroin can affect families and through my own family and, yeah. you know and what has it done to my brothers and stuff and but how did it all come to an end for you all this the, the drug abuse yeah well as as i was saying earlier my idea of heroin use was very kind of intravenous street use and i thought once i avoided that i was in denial about it you know what i mean but eventually it ended up there for, for me you know it was injecting drug use there wasn't my, I wasn't around too many people that was doing that. Mm-hmm. So I was doing it alone a lot. And a lot of the time, it would be trial and error starting off, you know, very sore-looking arms and stuff like that. A lot of shame as well, you know. And I would have been with different girls, kind of mm-hmm. trying to be in relationships, trying to keep some sort of normality, but self-conscious as well mm-hmm. around them, around family. I didn't. I couldn't be topless. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wear a T-shirt. You know, spending Christmases in squats, um, you know, and it's so sad. Like I'm sitting here and trying to yeah. try to keep the emotions and, in because it seems so kind of is. out of control. Like it's it's a place that your life could be yeah. fucking end at any stage. You know, and, and and society looks down on people like that. You know, yeah. like when we. When we talk about stigma of drug use, there's nothing worse than an intravenous heroin user. That's we we like when you're looking at a hierarchy of drug users, the heroin users are always at the bottom. I remember being back at parties, right, and they'd be mounting a coke on the table, and people be snorting coke off that, lecturing me on drug use because <laughs> they felt like that they were cokeheads yeah. and they could lecture me on drug use, you know, because I was using a different drug to them, you know. Yeah. I, I know there's another thing as well uh, for heroin addicts like that. They, oh, she, um, she, all I'm doing is smoking. I'm not banging up. I'll never yeah. do that. You know. Yeah. But when you're a drug addict, I know there's no such thing as never as well, James. No. You know. And I had that. I, yeah. As I said, I smoked it and then I said I'd never do that. And I, I, I do not like needles. Last time I got a blood test, I panned out. Yeah. You know, I do not like needles. But when I was using intravenously, it wasn't the question. Mm-hmm. I was using needles, it was no problem to me. There was no fear, there was nothing. It was like, this is what I have to do to get the drugs into my body. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a question, do you know? It's mad what, where it can bring you. But towards the end, I remember I was staying in one squat type of a place, do you know? And uh, I, I I was after using two bags, and at, we say, at 10 a.m., 
and I panned out and I woke up. It was about, it was dark. It was about nine o'clock. I was mm. out cold for about 11, 12 hours. And I knew when I woke up that time, I knew that I was close to the end because sometimes you, that's, that's an overload. You're not meant to be out for 12 hours. You know what I mean? That was very close. And when I was using on my own. It's a dangerous thing to yes. do because there's nobody around to raise the alarm. And anyway, I was looking, you know, for ways out. And when I thought about ways out, I was looking for that. Mm-hmm. I was using at that stage. I didn't care if I lived or died. Yeah. I was so ashamed of who I'd become. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was ashamed. You know, I was raised better than that. My family wanted to help me. And I just, I, did, I thought there was something wrong with me. I didn't think that I could get it. Do you know what I mean? And uh, I'd, eventually I'd run over those stand down at Blarney Street, you know, middle of the night. And uh, two guards found me. Yeah. And one says to me, look, James, this is a new loan for you, you know what I mean? You're going to be found dead. And I, you know, I was, I couldn't debate it, but I'm like, and I rang Merchants Key Ireland after that. I think that's the story that really hit everybody on the Tommy Tiernan show was listening to, to that story that you just told yeah. there. You know, um, I could, like, as you were even speaking about that, I know your mother personally and, you know, um, she would have been a good friend of my mother's. Uh, when she was alive, you know, their hearts must have been absolutely broken. I know. Because well, this is, it's not, this is just not about an addict. This is, a, this, this is a family disease. Like, exactly. it just, it rips families apart, you know. Yeah. Um, and like, uh, even the frustration of it, like, I have friends, since I come into recovery, I have friends that have died. Mm-hmm. And I have friends in addiction today. And it's just, it's just so frustrating that you want to change people and you want people mm. to see that there's better there for them or something. But when, when heroin gets the grip of them like that, it's like talking to the wall mm-hmm. and talking to me was like talking to the wall. Like it was, but eventually like when them, I don't know when them guys pulled me that time, it was a kind of a the penny dropped. Do you know what I mean? And I yeah. know like that this, I know there was one more attempt at sobriety left in me mm. before death. Because I was at the very end of it, you know. So I was yeah. using on the street on my own. That was close. I said, give it one more go. Because I tried drinking a few times. Mm. And I gave it one more go. And I went rang St. Francis Farm. And uh, got in there about six months later. And I didn't look back since. So that was your rock bottom, James? Yeah. There, was... I, there was a few rock bottoms. Yeah. But that was one point. Looking back, it was a turning point for me. Mm-hmm. It was—I I knew I was close to death. I knew I was bad. But when them guards said that to me, because like where we're from, we don't trust the police. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? The police are never seen as people that are there to help you. Do you not know anything happened me in the morning? First person they're going to ring is a guard. Do you know what I mean? But at the same time, the guards were always seen as outsiders coming in to annoy us. Do you know? Yeah. But at, in that moment, I seen a different side to the guards. Mm. And it was a side of compassion and kindness. Mm-hmm. That kind of, I knew for the guard to be compassionate and kind to me like that, it was coming from a place of genu- genuineness. Yeah. And I couldn't ignore that. And I, it sat with me, you know, for a couple of days. So mm-hmm. after that, I made the call, got into the treatment center. And I remember just arriving and just thinking, this is it. I'm yeah. never going back to that life. Yeah, that's some story, you know, fair play to you. Like, um, but, We'll have to wait till the second part to get into the education side and we're going to speak about um, where you are now in the education yeah. journey that you're on. Uh, we just want to give say thank you again to Danny O'Donovan from quickminutes.com and we'll see you for part two. Thank you. Slow lad.
This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, the Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.